0: of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. We have spent the last few episodes talking about the anatomy of the kidneys and reviewing filtration, reabsorption, and secretion, which occurs in the structure of the nephron. Each kidney contains around 1 million or more individual nephrons. This is the functional portion of the kidney that allows it to filter, reabsorb, and secrete. On the last podcast, we discussed in-depth loop diuretics, which take action in the thick ascending loop of Henle. And today, we're going to start talking about thiazide diuretics. The drug class thiazide diuretics is not as potent of a diuretic as loop diuretics, and each type of diuretic affects or acts on a different structure within the nephron, again ultimately altering the reabsorption of sodium and water as well as other ions. Now remember, if we keep sodium in the filtrate, which will become the urine, water will also stay in the filtrate and be excreted. We can tell a lot by the name of a drug and the drug class. Diuretic means that we will influence and increase urine output by altering sodium reabsorption in the nephron. Thiazide refers to the drug class of diuretics that acts in the early portion of the distal convoluted tubule. The distal convoluted tubule accounts for about 5 to 8% of sodium reabsorption in in comparison to the loop diuretic which the loop of henley accounts for closer to 20% or more of sodium reabsorption. So you can see this is a less potent diuretic but still provides adequate fluid excretion depending on what we are trying to achieve or manage. Thiazide diuretics are even less effective in patients with decreased GFR, which stands for glomerular filtration rates. Therefore, loop diuretics are preferred when creatinine clearance is less than 40 milliliters per minute. In fact, hydrochlorothiazide decreases GFR without altering renal blood flow. When talking about specific pharmacological agents or drug classes, we want to focus on five key points, those being the name of the medication or drug class, what the medication is used for, side effects the patient may experience, education for the patients, and the responsibility of the nurse when caring for patients on these medications. Some examples of commonly used thiazide diuretics include hydrochlorothiazide, which can be referred to as HCTZ. Chlorothalidone and metolazone. Thiazides increase urine output by inhibiting or blocking the sodium chloride cotransporter in the early portion of the distal convoluted tubule, often called the cortical diluting segment. Inhibition of the sodium chloride co-transporter increases the concentrations of sodium and chloride ions in the late distal tubule, meaning sodium and chloride are not allowed to leave the filtrate, which will become the urine, and they're not allowed to be reabsorbed back into the circulating blood like it normally would without the influence of a thiazide diuretic. This large sodium concentration downstream then promotes potassium excretion, in the late distal tubule and the collecting duct, thiazides also lead to increased reabsorption of calcium into the blood and may lead to hypercalcemia. The increased reabsorption of calcium occurs mainly because when the sodium chloride cotransporter is inhibited, it simultaneously enhances the TRPV5 channel. Which the name of the channel isn't as important for this podcast. But it is important that you understand the reabsorption of calcium is enhanced by thiazide diuretics and can lead to hypercalcemia. Just to review, the normal range of calcium is 8.5 to 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. Thus, thiazides increase urinary levels of sodium, potassium, and chloride and decrease levels of calcium in the urine. Patients who have hypocalcemia can benefit from low-dose thiazide diuretics to help enhance reabsorption and raise those calcium levels, which can lead to increased levels of bone density. Patients with renal stones, calcium-based, can benefit from thiazide diuretics, which enhance reabsorption of calcium, leaving less calcium in the filtrate to form into renal stones or kidney stones. Thiazide diuretics can be used to help manage fluid levels in heart failure in some instances, but they are definitely not the cornerstone for fluid management in these patients, and heart failure patients tend to have lower GFRs again. Thiazide diuretics are even less effective in these patients because of the presence of low GFR rates. Thiazide diuretics are often a first-line antihypertensive agent. Meaning they can be used as an initial strategy for managing hypertension by altering excess intravascular volume through decreased reabsorption of sodium and water. In addition, dietary restriction of sodium for lifestyle modification ways to manage elevated blood pressure is also encouraged. To reiterate from what I previously talked about, was that with the exception of metolazone, thiazides are not effective. At low GFR rates. Therefore, loop diuretics are preferred when kidney function is compromised. In addition, thiazides are often not first-line choices for diabetic patients or patients with hyperlipidemia because the drugs c- can exacerbate these conditions. It has been speculated that high circulating levels of sodium in the blood can increase vessel rigidity, Therefore, antihypertensive effects are maintained because low serum sodium levels can indirectly induce vasodilation. Hypotension or low blood pressure can occur when thiazide diuretics are added to a patient's medication regimen. It's important to monitor for weakness, lightheadedness, and dizziness due to decreased blood volume from excretion of excess water. We need to educate our patients that they are at risk for lightheadedness and dizziness and they should change positions slowly and with caution. Patients may also require assistance when changing positions to reduce fall risk. In addition to hypercalcemia, lightheadedness and dizziness related to hypotension and volume depletion, other side effects from thiazides can be seen. Hypokalemia is also a side effect of thiazide diuretics due to the increased excretion via the urine. Normal levels of potassium are 3.5 to 5.3 milligrams per deciliter, so you can see the potassium levels dip below normal range. And an important teaching point for the patient is to make sure that they are eating foods that are rich in potassium. Although oral intake cannot fully replace all of the potassium that is excreted with thiazide diuretics, it can help to prevent extremely low levels of potassium, which can place the patient at risk for arrhythmias, muscle cramps and weakness, myalgias, tremors, or even constipation from decreased smooth muscle movement. Thiazide diuretics can also lead to exacerbation of gout by increased uric acid levels, so we want to be sure that we're educating our patients regarding signs and symptoms of gout and foods to avoid. Elevated uric acid levels and early signs of rising uric acid levels, such as increased blood pressure, tend to occur as they rise above 7.0. Elevated blood pressure can occur can occur due to an inflammatory response by the blood vessels due to higher circulating uric acid levels. When levels start to rise above 10 or even greater, patients may really be exhibiting symptoms of gout and require treatment. Thiazide diuretics can also alter diabetic control for a diabetic patient by causing hyperglycemia. The mechanism through which hyperglycemia occurs with thiazide diuretics is still kind of this gray area, but it is important to educate the patient to follow their glucose levels closely because their oral diabetic medication or insulin doses may need to be adjusted if control is not being achieved. The role of the nurse involves monitoring their vitals, and to verify that they are not hypotensive or become tachycardic, which can occur in patients when they have excessive volume depletion. We want to weigh our patients daily or educate them to weigh themselves daily to monitor if they are losing water weight and how much. They should be weighing themselves at the same time of day in the same amount of clothing on the same scale to get an accurate understanding of their fluid changes. We want to monitor strict input and output for these patients meaning we don't want them to consume excessive amounts of fluid which will counteract or be counterproductive to the diuretic although they do still need to have 48 to 64 ounces of fluid to hydrate their cells that's an important teaching because patients think that if they're on a diuretic they shouldn't be drinking because it's counterproductive but They still need to hydrate, so we need to educate our patients on the right amount of fluids to drink. We also want to continue to monitor labs such as potassium, sodium, calcium, BUN, and serum creatinine. And you want to check labs not only after the initial introduction of thiazide diuretics, but also with dose adjustments to be sure that we are monitoring for hypokalemia and significant electrolyte imbalances. To summarize, thiazide diuretics can cause hypokalemia and hyponatremia while also causing hyperglycemia, hypercalcemia, and hyperuricemia. Thank you all for being here with me this week. Again, you can always find me on Instagram and Facebook at Let's Review RN. And next week, I'll be back talking about potassium-sparing diuretics. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.